Maybe a little bit of a morbid way to begin this morning, but could you imagine with me that as you went into this evening, what it would be like if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? What do you think would be on your mind Sunday evening if you knew tomorrow was the end? What would be important to you? What would you be thinking about? What would you be doing? You know, I would imagine for a lot of us, it'd have something to do with our loved ones and our family, wouldn't it? We'd be wondering, have I cared for them? Have I provided for them? Have I done what I need to? Have I, have I said what I need to? I would imagine a few of us might be a little anxious for ourselves maybe and about what happens tomorrow, what that looks like. You know, maybe we can imagine that. Maybe we can't. Maybe we don't want to. But you know, one place we don't have to imagine, we don't have to imagine what it was like for Christ You see, the Scriptures go into a good bit of detail about what Jesus thought, what He did, what was important to Him the night before He died. You know, He knew He was going to die the next day, didn't He? Knew that He was going to die a a violent, horrific death. And the Gospel accounts give us a lot of detail about that Thursday night. What He said, what He did, what He was teaching, what was important to Him. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever broken this down. It's really kind of interesting to stop and think about it, especially with the the Gospel of John. You know, John's 21 chapters long. 21 chapters communicating the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, we know that when we say His life, the Gospel accounts kind of focus on that three-year time period of his, His ministry. But still, that's a lot to cover, isn't it? It's kind of hard to imagine then that as John communicated that in 21 chapters, that five and a half of those chapters, 25% of the Gospel of John is about Thursday night. Stop and think that. He's planning this book out, writes it out. One-fourth of the book is about one evening. So we've got a lot of insight into what Jesus was thinking and doing and saying what was important to him that night. We know with great certainty that what was important to Jesus the night before He would go to the cross was you, it was me, it was us, and whether we would get along. And as Jesus moves into the upper room that Thursday evening, you know there's that place where He stops and He washes the disciples' feet and He's teaching. And right there in the beginning of that evening, He gives this command. He says, I give to you a new commandment that you, what? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, second time, love one another. By this... All people, the world, the watching world, the unbelievers, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. Third time, if you have love for one another. And with that theme, he moves on into the evening. And of course, you know, when we think of that Thursday night, really what comes to our mind is just one thing, right? The Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And he certainly goes through that. And, and then as they're about to close the time in the upper room and they're going to move out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested and, and betrayed. But before they leave the upper room, Jesus prays a prayer in John chapter 17. And you think, well, this is, 
This is the night before he dies. This is, this is a big prayer, right? This is what's really significant, what's really important to him. And coming right out of the theme of what he'd said at the beginning of the evening, he prays this in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, he says, hey, Father, I'm not just praying for the people in the room. I'm praying for all the people who are going to believe. Who's that, folks? That's you and me, right? I'm, I'm praying for future believers. Okay, well, what is Jesus the night before he goes to the cross? What is he praying about for you and me? He says that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Why is this oneness so important? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. That's the second time he's prayed for it now. I in them, you in me, that they may become, third time, perfectly not just one, perfectly one. Why? Again, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Folks, we know from Scripture that Jesus is absolutely committed to going to the cross. I mean, we know he gets in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and there's that prayer there, Lord, if, if there's any other way, but your will. Your will, God, that's what I want. He is absolutely committed to going to that cross for you and me. And yet, as he's approaching that, and folks, the product of the cross is us. The product of the cross is the church. And I believe that what he's praying here is he's carrying the heaviness of what is about to happen on Friday. I think he's wondering, is the world going to lose what happened at the cross by the way they treat each other inside the church. Well, that's a heavy thing, isn't it? And so that's why as he goes into this evening, one of the big things he's communicating, whether it's in teaching or whether it's in prayer, you guys have got to love one another. He says it's a new commandment. Does that ever kind of don't, you know, make you stop and think, a new? that's not new. And that's, that's all the way through the Bible, isn't it? Old Testament, New Testament. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. That's not, a, that's not a new command. And yet, it's not just be loving. And it's not just a love out there for all. It's a distinct love. A distinct, purposeful love for this community. What appears to be the newness of this is the mutual affection that we will seek to have for one another that is driven, that is motivated by the affection that Christ has for us. And the idea here, folks, is, is that as we take on this love, a community put together by the cross, and that, that's why we're a community. That's why we know each other. Because of the cross. And it is this love that is to be the distinctive mark. Did you notice the word the? Love isn't one of three or four things that should identify us. Jesus says it is the thing that should identify us to a watching world. And it appears that, that, that the way you and I relate, the way we love each other, is to be a significant piece of evidence that Jesus is the real deal. 
In other words, people would come in here, watch you and I relate, watch the way we talk to each other, or maybe more importantly, the way we talk about each other. And they would watch that, and they would observe that, and walk out of here saying, I want to know more about this Jesus guy. If that's what it does to people, I want to know more about him. And folks, as I think about that, I, I don't know about y'all, but my heart can't help but be saddened by the state of the church in America. I think the church does some wonderful things. And, and I think the community looks at the church at times for some great things. But folks, I, I think we would all to some level agree that, that the way the world looks at us as a people who fight each other. As, a, as some of the meanest people in the community. And churches are known for their splits. Harmony Baptist on one end of the street. New Harmony Baptist on the other end. You know, the old joke is any church that has the word unity or friendship in it came from a split. <laughs> Folks, do you, do you think that quite possibly, possibly Satan is getting a victory here? When we're known for our fighting, when we're known for our splits, and as Jesus is going to the cross, there's one thing he's praying for, and it's the opposite of what's characterizing us. We're to love. Jesus said you are to love. Not, not a love just for everybody, but a distinctive love for the community. And that love's not just a, a casual friendship and a, a casual appreciation for each other. Man, Jesus is talking about an engaging love, a committed love. Now, I don't know about you, I hear that and think, well, how engaging? <laughs> just, just how engaging do I have to be? I think probably this is the best way to answer that. Enough that a watching world, or excuse me, let me back up. Enough that the world stops and watches and says, I want to know more about Christ. That's how engaging, that's how much this should show. This is what people should see. And folks, we are to be doing a lot for one another. We are God's children. We are spiritual siblings, right? Here's a news flash. No, maybe here's a shocking news flash. Did you know that Jesus raises the spiritual family to a higher priority than the physical family? Most of us, when we have our little priority list, would never in a million years put the church above family. Jesus does. Now, that does not negate, don't misunderstand, that does not negate my biblical responsibility as a mate, as a child, as a parent. What it does do, what it should do, is elevate in my heart and in my life my responsibility to the body of Christ. And there is a lot of responsibility of what we are to be and do for one another. Look inside your bulletin this morning. Imagine some of you have already seen this. I've, matter of fact, I've shown you this list before. I think it was about three or four years ago. Maybe five years ago. It's not the same sermon, by the way. Similar topic, obviously. But uh, I've shown you this list that I call the one anothering list. Now, this list is a list of all the commands in the New Testament that use those two words, one another. There are other commands that speak to how you and I relate these are just the ones who put one another. Is it just me or can you just glance down at that list and go, wow, there's a lot there? 
There is a lot there that is to be guiding my life on Sunday morning. No. There's a lot there that should be guiding your life every day of the week. That should be guiding your purposeful relationships with other believers. Look what it says here. Let me just read down this. Listen, and please be overwhelmed at all of the things that should be going on in your life. Love one another 11 times in the New Testament. Fellowship with one another. Greet one another three times. If they didn't see you, make sure they did. (laughs) Wave and say hello. Be humble toward one another. Serve one another two times. Be hospitable. Confess your sins to one another. Uh, We can cross that one out. (laughs) Don't complain. Don't complain about one another. Don't speak out against one another. Folks, I wonder as God looks across the landscape of the United States today, and He looks at people in church, I wonder if he can hear as many conversations of believers complaining about one another, speaking out against one another, as he can praises to his name. Because it's happening, isn't it? It's happening in every single church in America today. Conversations out in the parking lot. Conversation in the concourse. Conversation in the Sunday school class. God says, don't do that. Now, you know why none of us sees that we do this? By the way, I would imagine most of us have. Do you know why I've never done this? Because I'm right. Oh, I've never done that. Because, of course, anything I've done, I mean, I was right. Or I was only talking to my closest friend. Folks, if you look those verses up, you'll notice there's no qualifier. Don't complain about one another unless, of course, you're right. Don't complain about one another unless, of course, you're talking to your closest friend. It just says, don't do it, period. You know why? Here's a simple reason why. It absolutely fixes nothing and it builds up bitterness and anger and enragement. None of which has anything to do with God. Everything of which has to do with Satan. And perhaps that's why Satan can be so powerful in the very house of the Lord. Don't complain. Don't speak out. Instead, you see the command right there. Instead, what ought to be happening in our conversation, we're encouraging. We're building up. We're not tearing down. We're building up. Be subject to one another. Accept one another. Build up one another two times. Comfort one another. Admonish one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another all two times. Don't lie to one another. Be kind. I mean, mean, it's just just simple as that. Actually work at being a nice person to one another. Don't, uh, Don't judge one another. Be devoted to one another. Don't envy one another. We are members, connected, belonging to one another. Twice. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Think about that, folks. When when people hang up the phone with you, when people leave a conversation with you, when people get in the car after talking with you, do they feel better? A little bit more energized to take on the day. A little bit more energized to do good. Do they feel better about the person they talk to? Or do people leave conversations with you and they're a little bit more angry? They're a little bit more skeptical. 
Stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. That's what should be happening when people leave conversations with us. Show tolerance for one another. That's a hard one, isn't it? It just flat means put up with one another. I know they're crazy. They're weird. They think differently. They're blah, you know? No, no. Put up with it. Tolerate it. Accept it. Go, go as far as you can in doing that. Well, look at this next one, folks. We're the product of the cross. The greatest representation of love and sacrifice. And coming off that cross, this is what Jesus has to say. Don't bite and devour one another. How can God even speak a command like that without it breaking His heart? That this body, this community that He put together by the cross, He then has to look to us and say, man, don't kill each other. Don't do that. You know, every command is there because it's an issue. Every command is there because it's going on. God doesn't speak to things that aren't issues. He speaks to what is going on. Wait for one another. Give the same care to one another. No lawsuits against one another. We don't, we don't sue each other in the church. We don't show the world that we can't work it out. We can't figure it out. Be of the same mind. That means I do everything I can to be in agreement. I do every, go as far as I can to think like you're trying to think. Seek after what is good for one another. Regard one another as more important. Speak to one another with praises to God. Look, folks, look back at the middle column, second from the bottom. Be devoted. Well, that's another way just, I think, to sum up the whole list. We're just devoted. When you say somebody is devoted, what are you watching them do? I mean, they're devoted to the, to the skins, to the cavaliers, to the hokies. They're devoted to their work. They're devoted to their family. When you've uttered the phrase, boy, they are so devoted, what were you watching them do? You, you probably saw a lot of energy. A lot of effort, a lot of excitement and passion. Maybe, maybe you saw a lot of money being spent. Boy, they're so devoted. Folks, that's what should characterize our relationship with God's people. Folks, it would be all of these commands right here that I would make the case that it is absolutely always 100% of the time God's will that we are a member of a church. A formal, official, not a place we go to most of the time. Not, not a place when I go to church, that's where I go. But a formal, official member. Now let me qualify that. I'm not saying God's heart beats to know that your name is inked on a roll somewhere. You know what? There's, there's places where, where, well, I'm a member of that church. I hadn't been there in five years, but that's where my membership is. Well, I'm a member of that place. I hadn't been there in five weeks, but I have no intentions on going back there. That doesn't count. It's not having your name somewhere. It's that you are a member and then taking that next step to engage in, in a small group structure. In, in relationships where you're growing in the Lord together. Serving the Lord together. Worshiping the Lord together. Folks, it is this togetherness. It is this community that is the New Testament recipe for growing in and living in the true Christian life. There is absolutely no biblical concept of a believer not needing the church. It's not there. But if you're a believer, look at that list. Look down there at it. How do you do all that? 
without being in engaging, committed relationships inside the church. That's a lot to do. And if you're looking at the list, say, well, I, I, I do most of that. Most of that's not obedience. Well, I kind of, I think I've done that before. That's not obedience. Obedience is purposeful. Obedience is consistent. Obedience is regular. You can't do this without being involved with God's people on a daily, regular, consistent basis. You know, folks, there's another way uh, of looking at the importance of this community, of this togetherness. It's a little bit more negative way, but it's showing how we are to protect at all costs this. You saw one of those in the, in the commands of the list I just read. We don't sue one another. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 5 and you look at that passage where it talks about we don't sue one another, it's a little bit overwhelming what Paul says there. It's a lot worse than just don't sue one another. He actually says, you know what? It's better to take the loss than be seen by the world as we can't work it out. Do you realize what he just said there? Take the black eye, lose the business, lose the money. It is better that that happen than in any way, shape, or form the integrity of our relationships be brought into question out in the world. Well, is that just me? Or does that sound like that's really calling for a pretty high commitment to this? Now, you know what? I'm guessing most of us are not going to be tempted or going to be struggling with an issue of do I sue or do I not sue another believer? At least I hope. <laughs> but you know something we all deal with? We all deal with causing separation in the church by our traditions and preferences. Our traditions and our preferences. What do you mean by traditions and preferences? We all have them. It's, I guess maybe the simplest way to say it is the way you do church. And most of us came to that by probably the first place we came to Christ. We might have been five. We might have been 35. But that first place that we got discipled, that we got trained, that kind of shaped the way we look at church. And when I say the way, that touches everything, right? It touches the start of the service time. There are people in America that are, they know somewhere in the Bible it says Sunday morning service starts at 11 o'clock. Anything else is not of God. I mean, that's, that's the way we think. It's, it's the service time. It's the music. It's the clothes. It's, it's what we do. It's what we don't do. It's the order of things in the service. We've got all kinds of things. You can't not have that. If you're thinking, you have a preference. If you're alive, you have a way of approaching this. And you know what the Scripture says to do with that? Leave it at home. As a matter of fact, did you know one of the biggest blows... One of the biggest arguments in Scripture is over this very thing. Let me show it to you. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Go through Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Get to Ephesians, Philippians, you've gone too far. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Galatians 2, verse 11, it says there, But when Cephas, now Cephas is who? Peter, that's the apostle Peter. Remember, Jesus gave him the nickname. His given name is Cephas. Jesus gave him a nickname. Did you know Jesus gave nicknames? I think he called one of the others Speedy. But he called, he called Cephas, he called him Peter. 
Okay, he's the rock. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now this is Paul writing. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I got up in his face and I said, Peter, you stand condemned. Now folks, this is pretty big, isn't it? I mean, Peter and Paul, would you, I think, I don't even think this is an opinion. I think we would all agree. We're talking about the two biggest heavyweights in the New Testament, aren't we? I mean, after the person of Christ, it is Peter and Paul who most shape the church, who most shape Christian thinking. And here they are, the two at the top, going at it. Well, what did Peter do? I mean, did, what, did he steal money from the church? Sexual immorality? Kill somebody? I mean, this has to be big for Paul to be opposing him to his face publicly like this. What did he do? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. So it's just like saying, before these guys came from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with Gentiles. <gasps> the horror of it. And when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, that's from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's not enough for Paul to go after Peter. Now he says, I want a piece of you too, Barnabas. Do you remember who Barnabas is? Do you remember who Paul was before he became a believer? Paul was in charge of executing Christians. Paul was in charge of getting Christians arrested. So when Paul came to Christ, no real surprise here, the church didn't trust it. They thought it was a trick. He's just trying to get inside and find out who we are. And Man, nobody wanted to go near him. And it was Barnabas who went and befriended Paul. It was Barnabas who began to disciple him. It was Barnabas who went to the church and said, guys, this is the real deal. We need to accept him. We, we need to let him inside. Man, you know, you could say, Paul could say, man, Barnabas, I owe you my life. They began ministry together. They began missions together. And now here Paul is taking him on saying, you're a hypocrite. Now, I read the sin, although I'm guessing the sin didn't, didn't fly off the page at you. You see, what happened here is these guys come from Jerusalem. And remember, they are Jewish believers. Peter is eating with Gentile believers. So you got two words, Jew and Gentile. Now, where the difference is, is these are all believers. But in the Old Testament, you did have a law of separation. The cross did away with that. But there was a law of separation, you and I would say, between believer and unbeliever. The New Testament language said between Jew and Gentile. You say, what was a Gentile? Anybody on the planet that's not a Jew. There's Jew, there's Gentile. There's circumcised, there's uncircumcised. Now, the cross did away with that. But guess what? That's how we always did church. We, did, we didn't do church with Gentiles. And, and so these guys come from Jerusalem. They see Peter doing church with Gentiles. And you know what they say? You're not holy. You're not being holy. You're not being reverent. That's not what God wants. And here's the problem. There's nowhere in Scripture you can prove that. Not a single verse in the Bible that you can go and say, hey, this is why you're being unholy. Folks, the problem is not having traditions and preferences. The problem is, is that we raise our traditions and preferences to the level of God's Word when God never said that. 
And then we cause a schism. I mean, we have to cause a schism. We have to attack because you're not being holy. Because you're not being reverent. And we will take people on and cause divisions in the church. Harmony on one end, new harmony on the other. It's happening all over America. And most of the things that are dividing church, I can actually say this, this is a fact. Very few church splits have anything to do with a verse you can point to in Scripture. It's over preferences and it's over my traditions and it's over the way I think the church ought to be done. Now folks, let's stop here. We do actually confront each other in sin. Other passages say that. We confront sin. We confront problems. As a matter of fact, when we confront, if the person doesn't respond, the Bible actually says we're to withdraw fellowship. We actually are to cause a schism. But folks, it also tells us how we do it. We do that in fear and trembling, overwhelmed with the reality that it's, this is just one sinner confronting another sinner. And when we do that, we show them the verse in the Bible where it says, that's why God says not to do that. Folks, if you can't open up the Bible and say, this is where God told us to do it this way, then can I say in all holiness, this is what they would say in Latin, shut up. <laughs> Don't say it. It is an affront to the freedom of the cross. It causes a schism in the community of Christ. And what did Paul already say? It's better to take the loss than to bring the integrity of this community into question in any way. We're all going to have traditions and preferences. But we don't rule others with those traditions and preferences. Man, folks, no matter how you look at this, the way we guard and protect against it, the, the, all of the different commands given, no matter how you look at this, it's pretty clear this is a big deal to God, isn't it? It is such a big deal. What would you be thinking about if you knew that you, tomorrow morning you were going to be violently tortured and executed? This is what Jesus was thinking about the night before. This is what was important to Him. And folks, if that's what God values, then would it be too much for me to say then that's what the Heights Baptist ought to value? We ought to value these kinds of relationships. This kind of community. What do you do with all this? What do you do with this today? Number one, you join a church. I'm not saying you have to join our church. I'm not saying you have to join today. I'm saying that if you're not an engaged, active member, officially, formally active member in church, then there ought to be, yes, no higher priority in your life right now than for you, for your family to find that church, get in it, and join it. It's God's will for your life. It's the recipe for the Christian life. And then, as an official member, moving into that second phase of engaging in these relationships. Here, here at our Colonial Heights Church, that looks like life groups on Sunday morning, right? That, that's, that's classes that meet right here on campus. At our Midlothian Church, that's also life groups that you sign up for, but they don't meet on Sunday morning. They meet throughout the week in homes. Folks, the issue is not the how. It's not the when. It's not the where. It's that we're doing it is that we are moving forward in these engaging relationships where all this can be lived out. Folks, we so value this at our church. I'm guessing, I tried to put a percentage on it. I would say probably more than 50% 
of the effort of your pastoral staff is all about this one thing. How we administrate small groups, create small groups, move people into small groups, fix small groups, make small groups better. It's what we're doing all of the time. It's because of this one value. You see inside your bulletin, you've got an insert. There's one insert at the Colonial Heights campus. There's a different one out at the Midlothian campus. And and, and we're using uh, on today's sermon, man, we're trying to encourage as many as possible to get engaged and to get involved. And so we're showing you some new classes. We're starting some brand new classes. Of course, out at Midlothian, everything's brand new, right? But some new classes, some of you may say, hey, you know what? Instead of getting involved in in an already existing group, I'd like to get involved in a group where everybody in the room is doing this for the first time. We're all in there together in a brand new class. We've got some of those starting. We've got some classes that are promoting their existing classes, but they're promoting some new topics. And, And you see those topics there. Maybe the topic is what you'll be of interest in. But folks, all of this energy, all of this effort, all of this, it's for one thing. It's to move people toward that. You know, I just mentioned it in announcements a moment ago. It's in your bulletin. Next week, we're starting new service times here at the Colonial Heights campus. Why new service times? Why change? One reason. Make it a little bit easier for people to make that decision to stay a little bit longer and go to that small group. Cut down that in-between time. That was the only reason for all that. I mean, folks, changing services is a lot. Changing those times. All of our written material has to change. The internet has to change. I have to stand up and tell people we're changing. I know it's what you love about me, right? No, it's not fun getting up and telling people, now that you're comfortable and know what's going on, we're changing. But you know what? We take all that on for one reason. How can we make it a little bit easier for people to take that step and get involved in small groups? It's because this is what we value. So our energy and our effort goes into making that happen. Get into a small group. Man, if you're not in a small group, you thought, gosh, man, I feel like everybody's staring at me. The pastor's picking on me. You're not the only one. You know, about 40% of our church is not in a a small group. About 40%. It's a significant amount. I mean, good news is about 6 out of 10 are. But about 40% aren't involved in engaging in relationships where you're growing, serving, and worshiping together. Boy, let me encourage you. Let today be the day that that begins to change. As a matter of fact, as you go out today, I feel like I'm on the Q channel or something selling stuff. As you go out today, you're going to find people wearing this shirt. It says they're life group genius. A genius means they can answer every question on the planet about life groups. Whatever question you have. Folks, I encourage you to go out there. There's over 20 of them out there wearing this shirt. And say, well, now, if I go to this, what about my kids? Or what, where will my kids be? Or who will take it? Well, if I go there, how many people are in that room? Well, what do they do in that room? I heard they handle snakes. Is that true? What happens if you go in there? Well, what's the topic? Well, what's the age group? Any and every question you have, somebody with this shirt can answer. You notice I don't have the shirt on. I can't answer all the questions. I didn't get a certification card. I, I had to drop out of the class. But they can. Go out there today and find out and do what you can. Folks, to do what God values... And you know what? I imagine there's some folks in here in small groups saying, boy, I've been in small groups for a while and I'm not, I don't know that I'm experiencing all that value. Let me ask you a question. And this would be the third thing we need to do. Look at those commands. Are you doing that? Are you doing all of that? 
Are you doing it on purpose? Did you approach the building today and say, how many people can I encourage? How many conversations can I have where I encourage somebody to take a step of faith? Hey man, we don't need to get bogged down in that. Let's be excited. Let's be pumped up. Man, let's encourage. Let's build. Are you approaching the building, approaching your class, thinking how many different ways can you minister, serve, care for one another? When we're doing what God said to do, you might be overwhelmed at how much we can be for each other and how closely that helps us walk with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I can't imagine I would be thinking about any of this if I was dying tomorrow. But Jesus, if this was of such high value to you, that this is what you were teaching the night before, this is what you were praying about the night before, if you valued it that way, Jesus, would you help me? Would you help us to give it that same kind of value? Lord, I know that 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 call to love, that's to love all believers. It's to love all the believers in this church, and the church across the street, and the church across the state, across the country, across the world. It's loving all believers. But Lord, clearly we're going to flesh out these commands. We're going to live these commands with the believers we're around the most inside the local church. Oh Lord, may we be careful, may we be purposeful, passionate, devoted at fulfilling every one of these one another's with one another. It is in Jesus' name that we pray the very same thing you prayed, Jesus. Amen.